This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. Today, I am joined by Emily Tissitram. She's a professional services manager at Stripe in the fintech sector with over seven years in tech management. She's the host of Manager Flow podcast and the author of Make Me the Boss, Surviving as a Millennial Manager in the Corporate World. During this episode, Emily gives her insight into how millennials differ in their outlook on work and how to manage intergenerational teams, how to leverage a performance review, even if you don't know what your five-year plan is, and how to build bridges of influence as a leadership superpower. It's a deeply practical episode packed full of guidance and tips. So let's dig in. So hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast today. It's so great that you can be here. And I know it's early doors in the US right now. So thank you for making the time as well. Absolutely, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. And I know listeners are probably listening from the future, uh, but we're right in the middle of kind of the queen, uh, the queen's death and funeral. And, and it's just been a very fascinating thing to observe across the pond here. All right, it's fascinating from inside the UK as well. Who knew <laughs> that it would last all day as well? <laughs> um, thank you. And let's kick off by, I would love to know, um, a little bit more about you. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? Absolutely. So my day job is I lead a professional services team at a very large fintech company called Stripe. Uh, you may have heard of it. Um, if not, it's it's one of the major players in the financial technology industry. Um, I've been here for just coming up on, it's, it's been about a year and a half um, during a period of very aggressive growth, uh, e-commerce kind of, you know, went crazy during the pandemic and Stripe was one of the, of course, beneficiaries of that. But prior to joining Stripe, I've spent about 10 years leading and forming and growing professional services teams across different verticals, all within the tech industry. And so a couple of years ago, I decided, you know what, I have just seen and experienced so many things the hard way, especially being a people manager in tech, which is a uniquely challenging and important role. And I decided to write a book. I think I lost my mind a little bit when I decided that. <laughs> um, but that wait, was... wait, do tell people what the book's called. Absolutely. Thank you. It's called Make Me the Boss. And it is a survival guide for first-time people managers in tech, many of whom are fellow millennials. So I wanted to kind of, you know, reach out and meet people where they're at and in that first big promotion and, and guide them through the first six to eight months, which can be quite turbulent. Yeah, I love that. And I have managed to sneak into the millennial cohort by a couple of years, well done me. But there's a very big difference between millennials like me that are like, I'm 1982 um, versus millennials who may have actually grown up with tech, not just got a phone like a brick when they were, you know, 17 years old. So um, 
tell what I really like to know is what do you see as the major differences for millennials in the workforce? Like what what's the differences for them? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes about us. I mean, have you heard some of them? Millennials are entitled and lazy and you... Oh, um, well, because I'm a millennial, I don't really uh, like the stereotypes. So I tend <laughs> to just filter those out a little bit. Um, but the kind of, for me, millennials are not just, when I was growing up, my my parents, um, I loved them dearly, but their era was you, you need to get a good education because they didn't always have access to great education to get a good job so that you can work, earn a wage, and basically retire and enjoy yourself. And for me as a millennial, that was never going to wash. Mm. It was never going to be enough. It has to mean more than that, because there's so much going in the, on in the world that is of great stakes right now. That's right. I mean, I think that you that you nailed it. But millennials as a generation and as a cohort of, of human beings are really defying a lot of the basic assumptions we've had about how people want to live and work and live their lives. Some of the demographic characteristics that we're seeing more broadly, which seep into the workplace is, you know, delaying things like marriage and buying a house and having children and all of those sorts of things. Um, we're also much more, um, we're much more likely to be living in a city, having roommates, and much less likely to be a part of formal organizations outside of the workplace, fraternal organizations, religious organizations. And, and as such, millennials have a very different relationship with the workplace than other cohorts in that it, it is so much more than a job. It is your status in the community. It is your social network. It is where you address a lot of your psychological and emotional needs. And, I think as a generation, you know, you, as you've noted, um, there's, you know, there's a really big economic shift happening as well. There's widening inequality, much greater awareness of things like the effects of climate change and systemic racism. And millennials are in a position of saying, hey, if I'm going to spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week in, in, at a job doing something that has to be meaningful to me. It can't just be a paycheck. And so the way that we show up in the workplace is, is really different. And, and what makes it different for a people manager as a millennial is you kind of have to reconcile all of that with this identity of now being this sort of corporate leader uh, that's got to kind of be accountable to the business as well as accountable to, you know, your, your social emotional needs. So it's, it's quite an interesting shift that's happening. And so I, I wrote the book because I, I really wanted to address the moment. And, and what I see is happening is it's a historic challenge, but also a, a great opportunity. Absolutely. I think that what we're seeing is people want from work, what we used to get from our communities, from um, volunteer experiences, from religion, spiritual awareness, um, I don't know, friendships, connection. They want all of that now from work. So it's all encompassing. It's like, like you said, it's not just a job, it's life. Like it's part of life. And if we're gonna spend so much time there, it has to mean something. And so you as a millennial, me as a millennial, when you're leading in a corporate environment and you're leading all different types of people as well. So we've got people who are in different cohorts, who are baby boomers, who are about to retire. We've got, what's the next one after that? Gen Xers. 
Gen X. Yeah. And then the millennials. So you've got all kinds of different people with different sets of expectations and requirements. So what has been your experience of leading within all of that melee of people? Yeah, I actually have an entire chapter of my book dedicated to managing folks of different generations. I, I consider it to be a great honor to have the opportunity to professionally lead uh, folks that have got a couple decades of, of experience, uh, even more than me. And, and, and I find that to be um, a really rise to the moment opportunity for, for us millennials. So I think some of the, the basic framework is really thinking about communication style with different generations and meeting folks where they're at in a variety of different ways. One of the stereotypes about millennials is that we don't care to pick up the phone and make phone calls. Okay, that's true. I'm just going to say it. That's, that's totally true. <laughs> why would you? Why? I think I was doing something the other day and I was like, why would I put my phone number on it? Why wouldn't I just put WhatsApp on the, on the like signature? Because nobody rings. I know. Unless they are like trying to sell me Bitcoin or something. Bitcoin. Okay, I haven't gotten the Bitcoin phone call, but I'm I'm excited <laughs> for that one. Um, indeed, though, uh, other generations, baby boomers and, and Gen X, and, and many of the clients that we'll encounter if you're customer facing, um, are traditional phone call people. So that's that's one of the kind of basic skill set things that millennials really need to adjust to and adapt to. On the converse, if you're managing other millennials, which is very likely, um, and Gen Z, the the workforce that's really coming into the workplace, they may prefer things like WhatsApp or memes or, you know, and and so being able to adjust to that and and have folks really meet you halfway, that's a very tactical approach, but it it matters, it matters. I also recommend people really write down important details about people's lives, such as What is the name of their spouse? What is the name of their kids? You know, think things that you can really, even though they may look and feel very different from your day to day, it makes it so that you do see your employees and your team as a whole person that has meaningful and important things outside of your day to day work environment. And that goes a really long way in terms of uh, closing that, that kind of generation gap. It's awkward for me as a, as a young person to ask some of my employees about taking their kids to college and dropping them off. You know, that wasn't so long ago for me personally, but, but the fact that I am able to hold space for that and have that conversation builds a lot of that mutual respect and then allows me to be in a, a position of influence uh, to be able to guide that particular employee on their, on their professional journey. And I think that's really important to get to know people as people, not just as employees as well, because people always come first, I think, when we're leading people. If something's gone wrong in their lives, that should take priority, not what, whatever the deliverable is, because, you know, if they're not okay, the work's not going to be okay either. Um, Absolutely. I, I love yeah. the hierarchy of the, of the relationship uh, with your employees and, and people comes first, be a human first yeah. as manager. And third is optional, but you can be friends with the people you manage, but it's got to come third. Your relationship to them and your, and your accountability to them as their manager does trump any, you know, previous friendships that you've had, which is common amongst millennials, especially if you got promoted amongst peers, chances are you're managing one of your friends and that can be a hard and and tricky adjustment. You got to kind of shuffle into your new space a bit, but it can be done. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. And 
One of the things that's really interesting to me in my own organization is really women's leadership. And with that has also come into the space of equality, diversity, inclusion, because you can't really talk about inclusion without the whole lot being all encompassing because they're interrelated, they're not separate silos. So as a millennial, as a woman in the workforce, how do you go about managing and integrating, you've talked about in your book, the Me Too movement, but also the Black Lives Matters principles into leadership how do you be a stand for those things in a corporate environment yes and i think the business case for for being aware of of these social changes that are happening around us is is very evident um young people coming into the workforce uh, want to work for a company and for a manager that embodies their values and and these aren't political values these are human values particularly again with, with the challenges that we're seeing in, in the economy and the climate and, and widening inequality and all, all of those sorts of things. So I am of the particular belief that the most impactful layer of management in corporate, in the corporate world to address some of these systemic issues is the frontline manager. And I have come to that conclusion after reading and poring over so many studies from very large multinational corporations that have invested millions and millions of dollars in, in you know, hiring diversity officers and investing in you know, build the pipeline and volunteering and, and diversity training. And the needle has moved so insignificantly um, over a number of years. And so the reason why I think that that the, the biggest point of breakage is, is at that frontline manager level is because you actually see representation drop off really staggeringly for all minorities as you climb up that corporate ladder and into various levels of leadership. So even if a particular company has really built a strong talent pipeline from diverse communities and is doing all this kind of inclusive hiring and, and all the right things, I'll just say, but then who's getting promoted to manager significantly drops off. And then who's getting promoted to, you know, a mid-level manager or director and VP and C-suite and so on. And so by the time you get to the global Fortune 500, there's very few women and very few people of color um, that, are, that are at that C-suite. And so I feel like the front lines can do and should do and are morally and business obligated to be stewards of these moves of these movements and enact really radically inclusive team management styles that ensure that everybody on your team and that you are a steward for is getting equal access to you, equal access to opportunities, is getting the coaching and the feedback and the tough love such that when the opportunity comes around again, they are ready. Anything from a performance review to a coaching session to just doing that extra five minutes of micro coaching at the end of a, a call or an email. It all matters and it all adds up. And, and I think there's just such an opportunity to, to really invest here. And I think that's a really excellent point because when you look at the Gallup report on how millennials live and work, it's a really interesting um, report actually. One of the big six shifts that we're seeing for millennials is they don't want to hear from their boss anymore. They want their boss to be their coach. And so you there are saying that you're integrating coaching techniques as a leadership style because all 
great leaders need to be great coaches too is going to make such a huge difference and of course I will say that because coaching is my thing but it does shift people's perspectives and people's confidence and one of the things that I see a lot because this podcast is women in STEM career and confidence is that the higher up you get in an organization as you said the the minorities you start to feel like a minority by default because there are not so many of you around there that in and of itself can impact confidence imposter syndrome even so I just wondered about your experience having climbed the ladder so quickly what has been your experience of your confidence during that process oh so imposter syndrome is is a familiar friend for me and and I think for many many people uh, that especially people from underrepresented communities in, in the corporate world, in the tech world, and in, in STEM careers, certainly. I see imposter syndrome a little bit differently than most people. And, and I write about this in my book for my own journey and, and what I can continue to experience every day. Imposter syndrome is not in and of itself a bad thing. I think that when somebody is experiencing imposter syndrome, what that means is you're doing something that is fundamentally scary, hard, impactful, and high risk. Those are the kinds of things that mean that you are growing. The first time you do anything, anything in life, you're going to have imposter syndrome. And so if you're not experiencing a little hint of it, I think frequently you're not pushing and, and challenging and, and stretching yourself enough. Now, the trick is you don't want to get into an anxiety spiral and get to the point where you know the, your, your imposter syndrome is really holding you back or, or creating so much discomfort in your life that you're you know, really negatively affected by it. And so for that, if you're in that space, um, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're uh, laughing, but it is no joke, actually. I think what, you, what you're talking about there is because I work a lot with balance confidence and fulfillment, that confidence piece. Imposter syndrome, like you said, the signs and symptoms of, of imposter syndrome, if we go really big with something, it's probably gonna show up. You're probably gonna feel that, that kind of, like it could be a panic, it could be excitement, not quite sure what it is, but I know that I'm growing, I'm going big here. There's like that part. And I experienced that last week. I gave my first keynote at a conference and there was that moment of, oh, look at all these people. But then there, it was like a, and now look how amazing I feel afterwards. But then I've been on the other side of the coin as well. I've been the person who has been crippled by the anxiety inducing imposter syndrome just by trying to speak up in a meeting, just by trying to I mean, not going for positions because of the fear that I'm just not quite good enough. And mm. you're right, that really is the realm of therapy or specific styles of coaching, which is what I do, voice dialogue, to be able to really dig below the surface. Because that imposter syndrome, I think, is like an iceberg. The top mm. part is the small bit you see, the signs and the symptoms, but what's underneath is what the real problem is. Exactly, exactly. And, and there's no substitute for mental health therapy, um, particularly, you know, if it's creating so much discomfort in your life that you, you know, you, you feel crippled or, or unable to do things you really want to do. So we kind of have to categorize it 
according to, you know, yeah. is this, is this kind of that natural, normal thing that happens when you're doing something new and scary? Um, or is this something that's like really genuinely holding you back? And so I also, I, my, my advice for folks that are experiencing imposter syndrome, which by the way, I, I continue to experience myself. I don't, I don't think it ever fully goes away. Um, but it's, it's getting really solid feedback about how you're actually doing from trusted peers so that you can kind of trip that wire in your brain that's telling you you're not good enough because you've never done this before or this is new. And you can actually get very specific things that you're genuinely not good at or not doing well. And then realize that, oh, that's not so scary. It's not scary to have things that I'm not good at or not doing well. I also have all these other things that I am doing really well. And, and I believe those just as much as I believe the things I'm, I'm not good at. And so you kind of have to rewire your brain to be very, you know, outsmart yourself a little bit. And in recognizing that just like everybody, you have strengths and you have weaknesses, lean into the strengths and, and you know, overcome or de-risk your, your known weaknesses. It's okay. We're all, we're all human beings. It's okay to, you know, have things you're not really good at. So, so I think as millennials moving into these management positions, sometimes we lose that because now we don't know who our peers are. And when we become first time people managers, like we're not going to be, you're not going to be good at it right away, you know? And so that imposter syndrome can be very, very intense and severe. And what I think a lot of people do is they overcompensate for it. Uh-huh. And we've all seen that, right? We've all seen leaders that we we can tell that they're overcompensating and, and they're coming in like a bull in a china shop and, and they burn out fast and they lose their influence fast. So you got to kind of manage that and, and be mindful and thoughtful about it and, and, you know, allow your imposter syndrome to keep you a little bit humble. Absolutely. And it's not just the fact that they managers can come in and burn out fast but it's teams that suffer too and they fatigue and burn out over time as well when we're led from that position of go 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 because I'm trying to prove prove myself here and I think you said something really helpful there because there is this as a scientist I'm like look for the evidence we really do need to look for the evidence that we're actually doing a good job as well as you know where we can improve all the time that really collecting that that bank of evidence And just as we can tell stories to ourselves that we're not good enough and go down that route, if you're a great storyteller and you're always doing that, you can also tell the good stories as well. You can flip it on its head and say, actually, I am doing well and I can do this. And you can change that story and that internal narrative as well. 100%, 100%. And those stories become your reality, right? So the stories yeah. you tell yourself, the perception is reality a little bit. So you gotta, you kind of have to hack your brain a bit. <laughs> to yeah, work. yeah, it takes time because stories are my arch nemesis. So it's still a process for me to go, oh, it's the story again. I have to change it and make up a new story. Um, but it can be done. And I know that you've been in this position, you said at the beginning for a year and a half now. So mm-hmm. Typically, um, you will have this annual performance review process. Now, I know as millennials, we want to move away from the annual review and want to have this ongoing feedback and process, but that is still a fixture and feature of many people's workplaces. So one, how did you go about doing your performance review? And two, what's your top tips and advice for people who are going through that process as well to really 
do it well. I actually am a little strange that I love performance reviews. I really enjoy the act of connecting somebody's performance, both the highs and the lows, to what I find to be the most valuable thing you can give your employees, which is where do they want to go? What are they trying to do? And so I think where people get tripped up in performance reviews is, is, is they see it as a let me list all the things you did well and let me list all the things you didn't do well. And it's like, that's it. And you're like reading the riot ad, you know? And it's like, okay, well, that's not really a value add. You know, maybe I was able to aggregate feedback and, and give you some of my own. But, but when you can tie it to, because of your unique position as being, you know, higher up in the business than, than they are, you can tie it to what's happening in the business, what's happening in the industry and what you know, as your manager, that person is trying to accomplish personally, professionally, holistically as a person, maybe that person's goal is to go and be a manager themselves. And so your performance review gives you the opportunity to go through how they're doing and connect that to behaviors that work really well in management or areas that are going to be their, you know, blind spots in management. Maybe that person's goal is to go and be a founder. Maybe they want to work in this career, but really they want to go and form a startup. So you can connect the performance to what are the skills that a founder has? Where is your business knowledge? Where is your story, corporate storytelling knowledge? How's your networking? Are you meeting enough people at this company that could be your future employees or your future investors? Um, or perhaps somebody, and this is completely valid, is just trying to achieve more work-life balance. Maybe they're at a phase in their life where their career right now is just a job and they want to be able to close down their laptop at 5 p.m. and not think about work again until 9 a.m. the next day. And so your feedback is going to be a lot more on boundary setting and time management and efficiency and the behaviors that will help them achieve that. And so I really enjoy it and, and feel like we can get into a vulnerable space where the feedback that I'm delivering, both positive and critical, is connected to what we both mutually want to see for their life. And when you have that trust that you both want this ultimately the same outcome, you can go into that space more easily. And, and I find it to be one of the most impactful moments that you have in that person's life. So uh, being present, being focused and, and showing up with authenticity shows that person a tremendous amount of respect that will earn you a lot of credibility as their manager for months and possibly years to come. I like that. I like the kind of the flip on its head from being something to be endured. Am I going to be coming out overall good or bad? Like um, just kind of outcome from how can I have it as a growth and learning opportunity? But what if the person that's coming to you, as many of my clients do, are feeling quite stuck in their career, but they don't actually have the clarity on what's next. So when you're going, you know, where do you, that question, people always say this to me, where do you see yourself in five years time, 10 years time? You can't answer that question. So how... How do you help and support people in that position? Yes, that is a, a very common thing. If you were to even ask me that, I don't know where I would say I would see myself in, in five years in terms of career and life and what does that all really look like? But one of the things that I believe is, is common 
is having more autonomy, having more mastery and having more influence over your career, whatever that ends up looking like are generally the positive things. So if you can't kind of unpack that career mapping and saying, I wanna be a customer success manager and then I wanna be a product manager and then I wanna run an engineering department. If you can't kind of get it into those things, think about, well, how do we set you up for autonomy, mastery and influence within what you're doing now so that that creates the runway for you to go and explore um, other aspects of your career. And so you can get tactical in a more focused way if you kind of, you know, drill it into like how, how do you have more, more impact and, and more hashtag influencer uh, in the workplace? How do we get more people to kind of be in your sphere and your network? I really like that actually. Um, I think we were talking about this um, at a drinks party a couple of weeks ago and someone asked me, you know, would you ever go back to working for somebody else? And I said, oh, I just don't think I could because I've got full autonomy over everything that I do, my time, what I spend my time on. I just couldn't go and then work for somebody else doing that. And I think autonomy is one of the biggest things that we can give somebody in the workplace, as much autonomy as they can have. The one that I want to pick up from, and yes, I'm all about the mastery, finding people's natural talents and strengths and deepening them. But influence, talk to me about how we become people who can lead with influence. What does that involve? I think about this a lot. And this is one of the areas where I actually think that minorities and women underrepresented folks have a little bit of a superpower here ah okay indeed indeed the reality is we have to be coalition builders right we are we do not see ourselves represented we don't have that kind of naturally occurring professional network that gets us into these positions and so as such we have had to throughout our life convince others of our talent and our potential and in our impact so I think that this is one of the areas where underrepresented folks can lean into some of the natural experiences and talents that we've had to not by brute force, but by building relationships, creating value and impact with folks in our near circle. And even one layer outside of our near circle can really help propel us in, into more formal positions of, of influence. You know, it's not like you become a manager and all, all of a sudden overnight you have all this power. You're still new, right? Just because you're on some org chart in some HR software doesn't mean that you actually have power. No, it, you, you have gained and aggregated that power by the work that you do day in, day out, the number of folks that you've been able to bring over to your way of thinking by, by creating a series of meaningful interactions that, that left an impact. So I think that it's something you build a little bit every day. Um, have you ever heard that saying that you're the average of the five people you're closest to? Yeah. I think that that is very true. And so if you're looking to gain influence, think about who those five people are. But you know, it's, and I probably shouldn't even say this, but someone also said it's not even to just do with influence as well. You're the some average weight of the five people who you are most, um, spend most time with as well. How weird's that? 
Oh, that is weird. Yeah, because you take on other people's habits as well. That you spend. Oh, that actually makes total sense. You're like eating what they eat. Yeah, <laughs> literally. So <laughs> applying that to influence is yeah. a really interesting concept in and of its own right as well. But I think you said something quite profound there because people who have been in a privileged position because by default of the color of their skin or whatever that um, is, because they're a man in the workplace, then they get access to these opportunities much more readily. And so those who are not in those positions of privilege have to learn how to go about this coalition building. And you use the word coalition as well. I love that, this kind of like collaborative effect of um, making change from within, influencing other people. So if I wanted to build a coalition, and you talked about like these these five people, maybe of the same level and a level up as well, like how do you go about enlisting people into a coalition? Well, this is a tricky thing because you can't just go up to somebody. I know, say, right? Want you be in my, be my club, be in my coalition. <laughs> Are you, you're old enough for MySpace, right? You remember MySpace? Yeah. Well, yes, um, but I didn't ever do it, actually. It wasn't a thing for me. <laughs> I was thinking about the other day. It still exists, I guess. So, I know. Um, so you remember oh, how you had your like top eight? If someone would make it to your top eight. Oh, so... Okay. <laughs> So anyhow, um, in your, in your non-MySpace life, um, you do need to really think about adding value. If you're trying to pull somebody into your circle of influence, it doesn't generally work to just kind of approach them and say, Hey, let me ask this thing of you. Now, maybe they're a naturally giving person and, and, and want to help you in those sorts of things. But usually that doesn't happen unless you offer a little bit of value yourself. So thinking about what it is that you could do that's painful for them. Maybe it's helping to review a, a big deck before presentation, or it's, it's, you know, offering some insight on a customer or a technical problem that, that you've seen that you want to share with them to help form their opinion of that same technical problem. That is the secret way to unlock that relationship by offering a little bit of that, of that warmth up front and, and, and pulling people into that circle and into your network. And I think what you'll find in the workplace is most people, and this is me just, you know, it's a bit of a humanist belief, but I do believe most people want to help and are genuinely good people that would like to see others around them succeed. So really going for it and, and creating that, that network impact of, of people that are you know, maybe a couple layers above, a um, couple levels above where your current sphere of influence is, that will help bring you uh, more, more prominence and influence with your organization and, and having people that can vouch for you and, and speak to your impact and, and credibility at that level, that is actually how you get promoted. So just looking at this um, practically, that would look something like, and I'm just like throwing it out here, um, that would look something like going to, um, as I would call low-hanging fruit, people who you already work with or already in your sphere and asking the question, what problems are you coming up with day to day? Like, what are the challenges that you're facing? And just being of that mindset of what do I know? Who, who can I connect them with? How can I be of service to that person? And then from that, almost leveraging that person. Who do you know who, who I should speak to next? Like I'm trying to widen my network. 
and they can say, oh, I'll connect you with this person. And is that the kind of like leapfrog effect of going beyond your current circle who other people know? Exactly, exactly. And it can be as simple as pulling out a copy of the org chart, looking at the people who you know, and then looking at who they report to and going to those people with that with that value add yeah yeah so it's it's like the networking effect of never network with um a, an agenda in mind your only agenda should to be of service to everybody in that room who you can be of service to and that gets rid of that like shining the light on you and helping you to shine a light on somebody else <laughs> or some other cause and that helps us all feel better about ourselves when it's not shined on ourselves <laughs> That's right. That's right. And it will be, you know, the reality is it's more work uh, for, for women and other minorities because we don't have those natural networks already carved out for us. So, so this is just one of the practical things that, that we can do to close that gap. But the good news is we're really effective at it. And, and when, when we're in these positions of power and leadership, now you're the one that can pay it forward uh, to the next group of folks who are going to be looking up to you. And, and, you know, to loop it back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, this is something that, you know, people really want out of their workplace experience and, and, and really look to have their professional experience, you know, address their soul as well. And so just go for it. I love that. Thank you. And I want to bring this back to you. So yes, I've heard of Stripe. Of course I have. I use it in my business, actually. It's one of my integrated payment systems alongside PayPal. I think that's like your two options, basically. Um, so I'm really interested in what you're doing right now. You've been there for a year and a half. A lot of millennials at this stage move around quickly or they move forwards quickly in like, let's say, two year to three year chunks at this stage. So no longer is it you must stay at a company for the rest of eternity. It's almost like frowned upon to stay static for longer than kind of three years. So I know you said, oh, I'm not quite sure what it is I'm doing next, but what are your thoughts from this point for yourself? Absolutely. So one of the things that I love most about working at a company like Stripe is how involved we are in venture capital, angel funding, um, hackers and, and founders uh, that are coming up in the world, uh, in, in, the, in the tech, greater tech and fintech ecosystems. And so for myself, right now, I am helping to build the enterprise professional services team at Stripe. And so essentially, it's a group of people that work with the, the world's largest global companies to, to help them adopt the software and, and innovate with Stripe. But I think where I'd like to go next and, and in tandem or, or in, as a future overarching goal is, is to be an investor myself. I'm learning a lot about what works, what doesn't work with really large global companies and, and seeing them continue to innovate as, as alongside startups. And I get very excited about that. So we shall see where life takes me. But I, I love being part of such a big global network of entrepreneurs such as yourself that are that are leveraging uh, our technology to you know change the world yeah yeah we absolutely are um there are so many small businesses that are businesses for good in the in the world as well so I love that and there is a kind of um an ethos for not always knowing what your next step is, but knowing the direction within which you want to make a difference and allowing opportunities to unfold long enough 
to be able to spot what that next step might look like for you. It can There can be this pressure to kind of have this plan written out, but sometimes it's just having that spark and that directional thing that's important. Um, I want to take you back now in time. So I've got two questions for you before we finish. I hope that's okay. Um, I want to take you backwards in time. And I want you to go back to a time where you feel like, I wish somebody had told me this piece of advice because I could have done it differently back then. What was that moment in time and what would you have done differently? Well, the sort of funny answer to that is I, I wish I would have studied uh, computer engineering. <laughs> <laughs> what did you study? <laughs> I studied economics and, and I'm very, very glad with how it has all turned out. Uh, but at being in the tech world and realizing that in particular infrastructure engineers are the world's most precious resource at this moment. Um, there's a part of me that thinks, damn, I should have learned how to, <laughs> how to do that. Um, but in, in, all, in all practical sense, I, in my first management job, I did the thing that I now write in my book and discuss, don't do this. I got into it and I thought, this is my moment. I'm going to change everything. I'm going to represent my team and, and really, you know, kind of pick fights with these leaders of other orgs that are like driving things crazy. And, and I flamed out a little bit. I, I didn't burn out. And I ended up staying in that role and continued to grow it over a four and a half year period. But I wish that somebody had given me a, the advice that I now give others, which is to first build those bridges and that influence. And you don't want to go in hot. Um, that's, that's only going to further alienate your team from the rest of the company and your department from the rest of the company and your peers. So you need to be an effective peer first and foremost, uh, okay. with your new management team. Ah, uh, such a great piece of advice there. Build bridges before influence. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Not burn bridges. And my last question for you then today. So Sometimes when we write a book, I'm in the process of writing a book and I've already rethought many of my own ideas along the pathway already. Your book is already out there. Since putting it out there, what have you rethought? Um, what new ideas have you had where you think, oh, I wish I could just go back and change that chapter now because I've learned something new. What's one thing that you would go back and rewrite in your book, if anything? Yes, that is a great question. I reread my book recently to prepare for a number of podcast interviews. And I remember thinking that when I was writing it during the COVID pandemic, I didn't fully predict how hybrid and remote first the world would be. And so if I wrote it with a different lens now today, I would have included much more tactical advice and, and tips about how to exist in this Zoom first, or in some cases, Zoom only management space. Uh -huh. Like there's a lot of, you know, this is, this is the way it's going to be. We're going to be in a hybrid space, you know, for, for generations to come, honestly. But I, I think there's parts of the book that I, that I wish I had adapted a little bit more for how the world works today. Um, that said, I, I wouldn't change much else. I think it, it really does meet the moment. 
And I'm told there's a lot of memes in the book because that's language of the millennial. I'm told that memes are on their way out. So who knows? I may have to go back oh, no. and <laughs> change it to, uh, you know, NFTs or something like that uh, for even a younger generation. But, but yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what I would change. Excellent. As long as gifts are not on the way out, I'm good. <laughs> I think they are. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so old. <laughs> so old um perfect so you would use that hybrid um virtual world as a lens to have written your book through but the essence of it would have stayed the same so thank you and if people want to go out and buy the book or connect with you what's the best next step for them to take Absolutely. So you can follow me on emilycitrian.com. You might need to put that in your show notes because it's a little hard to spell. Oh, I um, will. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm fairly active on, on LinkedIn. And I also have my own podcast, manager.flow. Uh, that's available wherever podcast streaming service you listen to. So looking forward to connecting. Oh, fantastic. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. To get further support in your journey, join me in Breakthrough Unleashed on Facebook.